Welcome to the Fuqua Show for the stories, the lessons, and the passions of Team Fuqua. I'm your host, Thomas Chang, and I'm so excited today to be here with my friend, Nikhil Srikumar. How you doing, Nikhil? I'm doing good, Thomas. Thanks for having me here. Of course, man. Thanks for coming on. You have such an interesting life story, background. So excited to dive in and to let everyone hear your story. So a brief intro for folks who don't know him. Nikhil Srikumar is a first-year MBA student in Fuqua's class of 2024. He's a truly global citizen and a lifelong athlete from playing high-level soccer, winning four karate world championships, and competing as a professional cricket player. He's now focused on sustainability, having worked in Australia's private and public sectors to build a more sustainable future. What else, Nikhil? What else do folks not know about you? Wow. I don't know how to uh, go from that. (laughs) That's the first time I ever heard uh, an intro like that about me. Uh, uh, nothing else. Well, I wanted to start with your background. You've lived all over the world. Your number one fact on your 25 Random Things essay was that you're an Australian of mostly Indian heritage who grew up in Saudi Arabia, and your grandparents hail from Singapore. So how did that upbringing shape your early years? I would say it's played a really big role in who I am right now, and I hopefully grow into as well. I've been extremely fortunate for having extremely supportive parents who've sacrificed a lot in their life to uh, be able to give me and my sister the resources and the opportunities that we have had. Uh, like my parents, uh, my dad moved to Saudi Arabia when he was 21. He had a he had a family of six other siblings that he had to take care of along with his parents. So as you can imagine back then in the 1970s, 1980s, moving to Saudi Arabia, which is a whole different world, working in the desert, like 40, 48 degrees Celsius, which is around 110, 115 Oof. degree Fahrenheit, trying to give us all the opportunities that we can thrive on. So I'm extremely fortunate for them. And I think growing up in these different, completely different cultures has taught me a lot of different things as well, how to be respectful of each culture. And a key factor, which my parents always say, there's always two sides to the story. You might have a perception of a particular place. It's only when you go there, start experiencing it, you get to see something else that you've never been told about. And that's always, I've always tried to use that learning in whatever I've done going ahead as well. Yeah. And and that's why the curiosity of the question, why has always intrigued me and has played a, a big part in my life all throughout. Well, Saudi Arabia was also the place where you developed this passion and love for sports. And we could talk about the karate, we could talk about the soccer, we could talk about the cricket, but karate was the first one. Yeah. How, did, how did you get into that at such a young age and continue for many years going on to win these four world championships? Yeah, it's it's actually a funny story because growing up in Saudi Arabia, like one of the first things my parents always made sure was discipline early on in life. I remember I was allowed to watch TV once a week. It was a Wednesday and it has to be at 9 p.m. Usually my bedtime is 9 p.m. And this, the movie comes up, it's a Bruce Lee movie. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is actually really cool. The funny thing is my parents actually saw the joy I had watching this movie. And a few days later, my dad comes up to me and is like, I saw you were really enjoying watching karate. Do you want to learn karate? I found there's a club nearby. Do you want to go? I was like, yeah, I want to do it. And that's basically the next week I was enrolled into karate. And that's how it started. And how old were you at this time? Four years old. Four years old. Four years old. So I, 
I have to credit my parents for seeing that. I wouldn't have seen that. And I think that's, that's, that's what shaped a lot of my learnings from a very young age. Uh, uh, yeah, the karate club has, was amazing. I got into something called Shotokan Karate Club. That's a style of karate. And the very early realization was that karate starts and ends with respect. And that's one of the key learnings you can take into everything. And karate has a lot of physical, mental benefits as well. Obviously, other than the obvious physical side of it, which you're like stretching a lot more, you're a lot more resilient when you take hits. But one of the key bits of karate, karate means empty hands. And empty it's only hands. Empty hands. And it's only used for self-defense. So you never attack someone first. And that is one of the first learnings I heard. I got from the very first class when my sensei, so sensei is the master, said like, you never attack someone first. And that stuck on with me. And I've tried to inculcate that in everything I do as well. I never try to attack anyone. It's, if someone attacks me, I'm just going to take it, process it, try to understand why. And that's the whole why bit that comes from the other teachings as well. It's like, why is it like that? What's the other story? So the kind of thing. So karate has always been, it's like a dance form. You always like, reacting to what's on the other side and you're turning back. Yeah. Well, you signed up when you were four or parents signed you up, you went in, but then what made you want to continue and get to the point where you're winning these world championships? Yeah. How'd uh, you do it? <laughs> as a kid, uh, I had a lot of energy. My parents would testify that. I know, I knew, like I was, I was very interested. I was running around the house. So I think it might be a way my parents wanted to get rid of me for a few hours. <laughs> it could be that. But I think I really enjoyed from the start. I think my my sensei kind of saw something in me as well. I was extremely driven from a very young age. I remember the very first time, the first class. So the class starts in such a way that you do one hour of yoga, then half an hour of stretching, and then you get into karate. So that's patience right there. But when you get to karate, the first thing was I wasn't able to compete with any of the students around me because they've obviously at a higher level than me. And that was like, why is that? I want to get as good as them. So I automatically started pushing myself. Like the, the first ones, like I saw karate students being able to do splits and I wasn't able to. And I was like, why am I not able to? From every day I started doing, started practicing splits. Every day when I go back home, my mom can see me against the wall trying to split as well. And then my mom was like, she never like mocked me or anything like that. She was like, oh, good. And she used to give me feedback every day. I was like, Oh, you're getting closer. You're doing great. So I think all that helped me, that kind of build up the confidence in me as well. And that kind of pushed me. And it sounds like you've had to push yourself, challenge yourself, be very, very resilient throughout your whole time. You have a story about your second karate world championship. Yes. I think karate is all about resilience as well. And I remember like right before my second world championship, I was on a high. When even the first one, you're like, you feel unbeatable. Nothing's going to take me down. And all of a sudden, I have this injury in my back. I'm bedridden for three months. Ooh. Um, How old were you? I was, I can't remember exactly. I was 12 or 13. Okay. Uh, my memory serves me right. And uh, it's, it's just a blow, right? All of a sudden, you're on top of the world. And now you're on the bed. You can't do anything. All the things I love, playing sports, getting out there, all that energy spent up. And that was the first real mental test that I've had. How do I get back into this? Am I going to be the same person I was earlier? Uh, is my competitor is going to go ahead of me? Is that, that's another thing, right? Always, there's always the other bit of sports which no one talks about. There's, there's always the competitors that you pit yourself against and they're going to drive you up as well. 
the better the competition, the more you push yourself to get better than them. So that was one of the key drivers for me. And credit to my parents and my sensei. They all were great support systems. They said I can come back from this. Uh, and I think it was a month out from the tournament. I get back to training, start pushing myself, trying to get there. And luckily it all worked out. And you won that world championship and then two more afterwards. Yes, I did. Yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. <laughs> so it was around this time too in Saudi Arabia that you also started playing cricket. And you were playing professional cricket even in high school. Yes. I started off playing cricket from a high school. It was a great team. I would say it's, even now, I would say it's one of the best teams I've ever played in. In terms of just pure passion for the sport, the energy, because everyone wants to just prove themselves. Uh, it was a good bunch of players as well. That's how I started off. And then I started playing for a club in Saudi Arabia. Uh, then I got selected to play for the Eastern Province of Saudi Arabia and then subsequently into the under-19 team there. Yeah. And you were still a student at this time? You were still doing normal school? Yes, I was doing normal school as well. So it was, it, it's a lot to balance. I have karate classes four times a, a week. Then I had cricket practice sessions and I had classes five times a day, which is usually from 7 a.m. to 2 p.m. So it was it was a packed schedule for sure. Well, tell us more about playing cricket professionally, especially at such a young age. What was that like? Yeah. And what did you learn from that time? Cricket, it's it's such an underrated sport. Even though it's the second most popular sport on earth, I fell in love with it when I was watching the Australian teams back then. They were the best teams back then. They was unbeatable. I just loved the energy they brought onto the field, the aggressiveness. I was, I was doing karate at that time, and I had this mentality, oh, they're doing great, but they're doing it in a different way as well compared to any other team. And that's how I started getting into it. And luckily, I, apparently I was pretty good. That's what my coaches said. And I just carried on from there. And I think playing cricket in Saudi Arabia is a completely different experience compared to playing cricket anywhere else. Because you're playing in the desert. It's not the best of grounds. Not many grasses, grass grounds there. And we had to start at games at 6 a.m., and we used to have a break in between for an hour because it used to get extremely hot. It used to get around 48 degrees. So that that was another part of the whole resilience piece as well. You're like trying to push through this. At times, there might be a sandstorm that comes through, but you continue playing. So like that created that base of, hey, you can get through everything and you're still just enjoying the sport that you love. Well, we're going to jump around a little bit, but you ended up playing cricket professionally in Australia too later in your life. Yes, I did. And, and that was a dream come true because you come to us because Australian teams back then were everyone's dream, right? You want to compete against them. You want to you want to know how they play, right? And it was a dream come true when I came to Australia. I was able to play for a few clubs there, like Kilara United, Sydney Cricket Club, most notably Sydney Thunder. So all those were great experiences. You're rubbing shoulders with Australian cricketers, players who are trying to get to the high level as well. And one of the very underrated parts of cricket is the banter on the field. And Australians are known for that. And this was the, my first ever experience on the field where I'm actually being the target of them. And that was another piece where you're trying to get over it. That's another aspect of the game that you need to get over. Quite often sports is 99% what you try to put on the field. And that one person is that slight advantage, right? So a lot of cricketers actually break under this banter. The sledging, that's what's called. So this was a challenge for me. I was able to get over it. And Australia has completely different conditions to Saudi Arabia. Now you come to Australia with amazing grounds, grass pitches everywhere, 
extremely fast bowlers, people who are much taller than me, They're easily 6'4", 6'5", bowling at 90, 95 miles an hour, and you're able to face that. So there's a different challenge, which I really, truly cherished. What was an average day in the life of a professional cricket player like? It was a lot of free time, to be honest. There was plenty of trainings that you got to go to. There was like three different workouts in a day. Yeah, it's, it's because of the free time I had. I thought like I can start developing on some of my other professional skills as well. And that's why I started, decided to do a master's while I was playing as well. So I can do both. I can develop myself professionally, start talking about a lot more from an academic point of view, but also play at the same time. Okay. Well, I want to get there in a little bit, but I do want to talk about a chapter before this this cricket one in your life where after Saudi Arabia you decided to go back to India for your undergrad what prompted you to make that decision to go back yeah i never thought of going to india i it didn't cross my mind at that point but then it was my dad who came up to me he was just talking to me and he's like why don't you like go to india do your undergrad there try to know your roots heritage Try to understand the life, way of life that I think is going to help you a lot because if you haven't experienced that life yet, the things that you learn will actually make you a better person. And I was intrigued by that. I was like, all right, that makes sense. Let's, let's just do it. Well, I imagine that you're very glad that you made that decision because you met a very special person there in <laughs> India. Yes. According to my, my wife, the best decision I've ever made. It is true. It is. I met the love of my life doing undergrad there. Her name is Niranjana. Fun fact, we were actually classmates and adjacent role numbers as well. What does that mean for folks who aren't familiar? Uh, so it's like, uh, so in India, how it works is in each class, you have something called a role number, which is this, which is how they decide your groups for particular projects. And also she had no escape. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I was role number 36 and she was 37. So that's how like we were able to talk a lot more as well. So yeah. So you were destined to be next to each other? I don't think so. Yeah, because it's funny. We often think about this. We have actually run into a lot more of that 36, 37 number many different times in our life. And we're like, this has to mean something, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah, we're together and I can't be happier. Okay. Well, let's fast forward again a little bit. So you grew up in Saudi Arabia. You did your undergrad in uni, you went back to Australia to play cricket for a few years professionally. And then at a certain point, you were saying earlier, you decided need to pivot and, and do something else, went back to school for the master's and started your career in sustainability. Yeah, a lot of these were driven by injuries. It played a huge part in my career, limiting my career to an extent. With the more injuries I started getting, I started getting the realization that this is not a lifelong career. I need to start doing something more as well. And I started trying to link a lot more my passions together and trying to figure out what can I do in this space. So that's why when I was playing cricket, towards the last season I had, which is around 2014, 2015, I was working at Sydney Thunder then. And the management then said like, hey, if you think of organizing women's 2020 league, uh, are you interested in organizing it or being a part of it? And I was like, I'm not playing right now. Might as well just start doing it. And that was my first ever professional experience doing something in this space. And I'm glad it was something in a very social and a community-driven initiative as well. And that aligned a lot more with what was close to my heart because I was quite passionate about human rights growing up in Saudi Arabia. And this was something I was like, I'm trying to progress something or trying to help progress something 
in the women's sport. So I was like, this is a great transition. And it's once after I completed that, that I was like, all right, I need to take the next step. So how do I start linking my background, what I've done so far, and try to go forward with it? And that's why I started linking my undergrad in electrical and electronics engineering. From that, I did a master's in energy planning. How do I link this? And what am I passionate about, which is impact, human rights, and all this stuff. So it was an easy transition. The answer was sustainability. Well, you've worked in both the private and public sectors in Australia in sustainability. For you now, especially at a business school, where do you see your impact in this space moving forward? One of the big reasons why I wanted to do an MBA was that I saw the maximum impact that could be achieved is through business. I know often sustainability has often been seen as an add-on to strategy. Uh, and I envision that even though ESG has become a thing in the last two years, I do envision the maximum impact could be achieved when ESG is a core pillar of corporate strategy. And that's when you're going to start seeing incentives. When business models are driven by sustainability, that's when the impact is going to happen. So that's why I wanted to do an MBA, try to understand much better how the dynamics of business as a whole works, what are the different ways I can influence it, learn, learn a lot more from it as well in my journey. Well, you're killing it here. I would love to hear from you is what from your sports background do you think has helped you in the professional world and here at Fuqua? I think one of the key aspects of sport that always resonated with me was how to deal with failure. How to deal with failure. Deal with failure. Because that's something you, when you're watching a game, you never think about all the, the, the hours and hours of training sessions that go behind a match, right? So one of the key things of sports is like, when you're doing karate or cricket, you're going to fail 99% of the time. And then 1% is when you succeed. In cricket, especially, you're not going to hit each and every ball. You're going to miss. It's about how do you manage it? There's often weaknesses in you. So it's like, how do you become self-aware, grow yourself and keep learning from it? And that is one of the key things I was able to bring over to sustainability as well. Because sustainability is... There's a lot of failures. It's not an easy space, right? There's a lot of stakeholder management you got to do. You got to start convincing people. There's going to be failures all over. How do you deal with it? How do you learn from it? Come back better? What is a different way of approaching a problem? How can I convince a particular person a different way? So those are the different things I was able to bring in. But also don't take failure to heart, but try to adapt and learn from failure. Oh, I love that. And I think it's a lesson that a lot of us, myself included, really need to, to internalize, <laughs> not just here, but also in our lives and careers moving forward. 100%. I think that's one of the things, especially in the, the rat race called the MBA recruiting bit. Failures can be taken in a really harsh way or really too hard, basically. But it's all about what do you learn? I often look at like, what did I learn that I can use for my next process is just the way you can go about it. So you mentioned earlier that human rights is a big passion of yours. And you actually had a really interesting experience at the Invictus Games a few years ago. Tell us about that. Yes. Invictus Games, for people who don't know, is an Olympic-style games which is organized for injured war veterans around the world. It's organized by Prince Harry and Kensington Palace back in the UK. So in 2018, it was held in Sydney. So I was fortunate enough to be a program manager for Invictus Games. I would say Invictus Games is one of those moments that completely changed my life or the perspective of what needs to be done in this world because I was completely unaware 
of the the troubles that injured war veterans are going through, how they weren't seen as good hires by company, which is crazy to think because they've been in the most high pressure situations in life and they're not good enough to handle a corporate job. It started making me think, is there any way that I can start doing something to help them out? And that's when, even though I have a background in sustainability, I haven't really done anything in human rights. Or, it's a really complex space, right? So that is one of the key things which I took from one of the learnings of karate again. It's like, how do you constantly reinvent yourself? And the first thing I did was try to call up all my friends that I know who are in this space. Like, hey, is there any different ways we can start doing something to help them out? And that's when the Modern Slavery Act was being enacted in U- European Union and in Australia as well. And I thought that might be a great base to start off, but by adding in a lot more different initiatives that help countries like Afghanistan, Iraq, grow back to what they were and how, what can we do to help that. So that's how we started developing a framework and we presented it to the leadership there. I was fortunate enough to present it to the the Australian Governor General and Kensington Palace. So it was basically giving them the rights to host the future games. And by that means, making sure manufacturing and human rights standards were up to the European Union or the Australian ones, which is a much more higher standard than what would have been there at that point of view. So you were presenting this anti-slavery framework to Australian leadership? Yes, so the Australian Governor General. Wow, uh, which is which is a crazy experience, to be honest. I wasn't expecting that. And what is what was the reception like? It was they were like, "Oh, this is a good idea." I mean, yeah, is there anything else we can do to support? Is there any other way we can add to this? So that was extremely interesting to hear as well, because I was expecting a lot more questions, like, "Why? Why do we have to do this?" So that kind of reinforced my belief in human race as a whole. I think every every human wants to do the right thing. At times, they don't have the idea presented to them. Sometimes you present it to them. It might happen. So if you have an idea, always come out with it. It may work. So I'm hearing a really interesting link from you between sports and social impact, which are two areas that most people wouldn't necessarily connect together. Is there a link? And if so, what is that for you? I think definitely there's a link. I think sports, it has the power to bring people together, right? It's one of those sports where there's so much respect generally between rival fan bases. It's if it, Even if the rival fan bases, they might be abusing at each other during the 90 minutes or whatever the game is. But after that, they're just friends. They're just hanging out. I think that attitude coupled with sustainability could be that neutralizing agent. And I think sports as a whole is such a big business. It impacts so many different people that if you're able to bring in that sustainability angle as well, I think we can achieve a lot more. And I would say, like, I often joke around saying the perfect job for me in the future would be at a sports organization where I'm trying to bring in some of the human rights and sustainability initiatives. Because if you think about it, like, they got t-shirt sales, they got the marketing, they got different, they reach populations that a normal business can't reach as well. For example, a club like Real Madrid has fans in 185 countries. That is insane. So imagine the impact you can have, let's say. Do you have any favorite pieces of advice that you've heard or that you've developed over the years? Yeah, there's, there's been plenty of advice I've been handed down and I'm glad for that. But I think like there's three different advices that I often hold close to my heart and I think always drives me as well is be grateful for what you have. It's it's very easy to focus on the things we don't have 
but it's important to remember all the good things in our life. So every day, take some time to be grateful for what we have and appreciate we have and what we can give as well. Another piece of advice, which I tossed up on earlier, was how to look at failure. I remember my sensei telling me failure is growth in disguise. And that that's always stuck around with me. And that's that's the mindset I want to keep going with as well. And the third one was kind of related to both is live in the present moment. It is easy to get caught up in the past or the future, but it's important to remember the only moment we have is the present and to make the most out of it. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Nikhil. Learned a lot from you today from your early years and all the things you told us about curiosity, respect, understanding other people, resilience, and, and rebounding from failure, whether it's on the pitch or here at Fuqua or anywhere we might find ourselves in the future. So thank you so much again. It's been an absolute pleasure and we'll see you next time. Thanks for having me. Thank you.